Good morning, I am Mike Overstreet. I am one of the pastors here, and I actually wanna to start today with a confession. I am about to shamelessly copy another person's analogy and act like it's my own. No, I'm just kidding. But I am about to borrow something from this teacher that I love, Tim Mackey. He's a far smarter person than I. And this is a moment of humility because quite frankly, I pride myself greatly on thinking of goofy metaphors and movie connections and analogies that make you guys care about the boring Greek and Hebrew I see in the Bible. And I just really think I'm decent at it. But every once in a while, while I'm doing research, I just come across a metaphor or an image or an analogy that gets at it so much better than I ever could. It just nails it. It just makes you go, yep, that is it. And in that moment, I have to humble myself. I have to fall on my knees and just acknowledge that I am shamelessly stealing it. So I'm citing my source. I'm doing good academia. Do not email me. Maribel gets it. <laughs> and this analogy that I want to begin with today is actually about the experience of learning a new instrument or learning to make music, which you probably think is really weird because you've never seen me on the stage and you never will. But that's because I have started and quit more instruments in my life than most people ever dream of. I am a pro at half learning just about every musical instrument that's ever existed. And as I was thinking about it this week, I just thought that this process that we go through of learning how to play an instrument, learning to make music is perfect for where we're gonna go. And before we do that, I wanna share some of my experiences with that process. So for example, I tried to play guitar, but it hurt my fingers too much and I just, no, not for me. My favorite one that everyone always gets excited about is this one. I learned the bagpipes for a hot minute in middle school. And if you, I'm not just posing, I got an action shot. Yep, in a parade. <laughs> It's evidence, y'all. Yeah, I played the bagpipes in middle school. I don't anymore. I will not play Amazing Grace at church. Do not ask me to. But the instrument I played the longest was actually through middle school and high school, and it was the drums. Um, I, I really took up playing jazz drums and various other types of percussion, marimba, xylophone, all that good stuff. And the drums, for me at least, capture the process that I want to focus on today this process of what it takes to learn to play a new instrument, to learn to make music, because the process generally follows the same pattern. So what is the first thing you do when you want to learn an instrument? You have to set out to decide that you actually want to do it in the first place, right? You have to think about your life. You have to think that something's missing. You have to want to make music. So you set yourself to the task. I want to play guitar, or in this case, I want to play drums. And then what do you do? You find a teacher. You can't just teach yourself guitar. I've heard some of you try. It is terrible. You have to seek out a master or a teacher, someone who knows how to play it better than you have, someone who has been there before, someone who knows the way. And you come to them. You say, I want you to teach me. They say yes. And then over the course of time, you have to trust them. You have to follow them. You have to let them teach you. And then you have to do it. And then comes my least favorite part. You have to learn the fundamentals, and then you have to commit to doing them over and over and over and over and over again. Do you not? So for drums, for example, it's this thing called the rudiments. It's a series of patterns that you learn that just form the foundations of playing percussion. And I'm going to try. You guys think I still got my stuff? 
I'm not very good at this. Wrong. <laughs> so it's things like this. It's, these Spanish, it's like the flam, right? Or the single stroke grill. Yeah, you guys got that one, right? Or my favorite, the paradiddle. Paradiddle, 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 paradiddle. Or the roll. Drum roll, please, right? These are just the rudiments. And what you do is you learn these. And then through repetition, doing them over and over and practicing them faster and faster, you get to the point where you can make music. Because the whole point of the repetition is not just mere memorization, it is the idea that you want to make these unnatural movements to you feel like second nature. You want to get to the point where you've done them so much that you don't even think about it. And you just, without thought. And the point is once you get to this, this place of internalized knowledge, of having it just be what you do without thinking, at that moment, you can actually start to make music. Has anyone done that before? It's this amazing moment where you stop thinking about playing the instrument and you just do it. Because it's the muscle memory, almost. And quite frankly, if you know anything about me, this is why I've never become proficient in any of these instruments, because I just am lazy. And I just give up at the point where I have to do it over and over and over again. You can call it ADD. I just get bored. And thus, I've never actually been able to make music. I've just been able to play it to some degree for pockets of my life. And I want you to hold on to this idea. I want you to plant it in the back of your head, stick a pin in it, because I believe this process is central. It's a perfect analogy for where we're going today as we continue on in our series for the spring. See, we've been doing this series, God Part Two, where we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew, We've been exploring Matthew's story of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. We've been engaging it as what we've been calling a true sequel story. And that is true sequel stories find ways to include, build upon, transcend, and complete the originals that come before it. And that's exactly what we, we believe is going on in Matthew's gospel. That when you get at the heart and what Matthew's trying to teach us, he believes that it is a sequel story to one of the central books of the Old Testament. It's this book called the Exodus, the story of God rescuing his people from slavery with this guy named Moses, leading them to the promised land and making them into a conduit for what he wants to see done in the world. Healing, peace, shalom, goodness. And what we've been looking at is that for Matthew, what he fundamentally believes is that at the heart of who Jesus is, why he came, is this Exodus story in mind. That, for Matthew, when we look at Jesus, what we find is that God is writing his next chapter of rescue and liberation for his world. A new Exodus story crashing into our reality to set the prisoners free. And that's just where we've been going in this series. And last week, we walked through Matthew chapters 3 and 4, and we saw that this Exodus story was in view, did we not? We saw that the story of Jesus really mirrors this. That in the Exodus, what happens? God rescues the Israelites out of Egypt and leads them through the what? The waters of the, the Red Sea. Some people paid attention last week. He passes them through the waters of the Red Sea and into the what? 
the wilderness, the place of trial and testing that they have to pass through to get to the promised land. And in the wilderness, and they're tested to see if they will be true to God as their king, if the Israelites will follow God and live in his kingdom, pass or fail. Fail, you guys are getting good, I'm training you. This is good, this is good. They fail. They fail to stay true to God's purpose for them. And they end up in this thing called exile, where they long for and wait for the arrival of God's what? The kingdom of heaven. So what happened in Matthew chapter 3 and 4? Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. He goes into the wilderness where he is also tested, but he succeeds where Israel failed. And he exits the wilderness as the true son of God, the one who stayed true to his calling, who stayed true to his identity, who is here to do what Israel had not been able to do, announce that the kingdom of heaven is here, that it has come. That through Jesus, somehow, some way, Matthew is telling us that this moment where God's kingdom and his rule and his reign has arrived in our reality to make things right in the way that the Old Testament wasn't able to. And having announced the kingdom of God, announcing that it has arrived through him, Jesus did what we looked at last week. He started forming a community around himself. He started inviting people into the kingdom and healing them. And as we looked at, he invited all of the worst and least expected people. The very people that we as like religious people are like, well, they're not invited. Those are the people he started with. The poor, the sinners, the spiritual zeros, the people at rock bottom. Jesus arrives, he announces the kingdom, and he says, you are invited first. And then we get to our section today. So he's called this community, right? this crowd of unexpected people to himself, and now he's going to begin to teach them. We read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And what follows is this three-chapter-long sermon from Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the single most important teachings in the whole Bible. It is the longest single message that Jesus gives. And what it focuses on is what some people call the ethic of the kingdom of God. What does that mean? That's a lot of fancy words, right? Essentially, it's about what does it look like to live in the kingdom here and now? What does the life of a disciple living in the kingdom look like? What kind of actions does it produce? What kind of lifestyle? What is it? What does it mean to live in the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? And what he does is he begins to unpack that in some amazing detail. And to begin to explore it, I actually want to look at how Jesus built to this teaching. Because you might have missed this, right? There's something interesting going on. He passes through the waters and the wilderness and then calls a people to a mountain to teach them about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. Did you catch it? This is the next step in our Exodus story. This is the next step in Jesus' sequel. Let's go back to the Exodus. What happens? Moses and the Israelites are led through the waters of the what? The Red Sea. They go through the wilderness, and they're led to a mountain. Who knows what the mountain is called? Mount Sinai. And where, what happens there? Moses goes up the mountain. He meets with God, and he is given something by God to take down to the Israelites. Who knows what it is? The Ten Commandments or a teaching, an instruction. You see, they are told that God is going to reshape them into this distinct people in the world, that he will use this new kind of human being, this new kind of community to bless 
the people of his world, and to show his world his character. And central to this reshaping, this purpose that God has for the Israelites is this teaching that God gives to Moses to bring back down to his people. And it's this instruction that's based on two key things, the covenant and then this thing called the law or the Torah or the instruction. So the covenant first, what was that? It was the agreement between Israel and God that essentially established a committed relationship between them. It's as simple as saying this, it is essentially the commitment that God would be their God and they would be his people in terms of how they live in our world. So God liberates them out of Egypt by an act of grace. And in response to that generosity, to that liberation, they live a certain way in the world with him as their king. What is the law and the Torah and the instruction? Well, it was supposed to be the teaching about how they would live in response to that grace. So it is simple as saying, once I have done this act for you, this is how you respond in turn. And as we already walked on, the first part of it is the 10 what? 10 commandments, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not blah, 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 thou, 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 right? We'll get into that another day. But yeah, the 10 commandments or the 10 instructions for living. This is how you live as a human being in God's kingdom. And then as you read the first five books of your Bible, you're going to learn that there are 603 more, good goodness. And they cover all sorts of things about like, how do you live in response to God? What does our relationship with each other look like? How do you keep justice? How do you take care of the poor? And on and on and on it goes. And it's interesting because in other words, what happens is God promises to be faithful to Israel and Israel in return promises what? It promises to learn a new way of living in the world, living in our world with God as their king and as their teacher. It is this thing where it's like they receive God's teaching, and what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to transform these slaves who have just been freed into a new kind of people in the world. They call it a nation of priests, a small pocket of human beings learning how to be human again, as God intended them to at the beginning. But as we are constantly doing in this series, does Israel stay true to their side of the covenant, pass or fail? Fail. Israel does not. Israel cannot, they do not know how, or they just don't want to. I'll leave it up to theologians to debate that. They do not stay committed to being this unique community in the world, defined by right relationships, defined by justice, defined by being a blessing for other people. They go their own way. They refuse to follow God as king. They don't let him be their teacher. They end up coming into conflict with other nations, including Babylon. And how big is Babylon compared to Israel? Very big, and it does not go well for Israel. They get wiped off the map and taken into this thing called exile, where they are taken from the promised land as slaves once more, and it seems like God's rescue plan is off the tracks. But this gets us into where I really want to focus today, because this is really fascinating. In the midst of the exile, we actually find these Old Testament prophets pointing to the future in which God is going to come. He's going to complete his rescue story. And one of those prophets, one of the most important ones, is Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, we find this promise from God that is central to the story of Scripture. It's the promise of a new covenant. We read, 
This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after the exile, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or have to say, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the war, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So in the face of Israel's covenant breaking, does God break his side of the covenant? No. He remains faithful. Does God give up on his people and his rescue project? No. He promises restoration out of the midst of failure through this new covenant, one formed out of the old covenant, one that includes, transcends, and completes what the first covenant was meant to do. A covenant defined by a few things in the text. We read that's defined by a renewed relationship. I will be their God and they will be my people. It's a covenant defined by the transformation of the human heart and mind. What did it say? It said, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. A new covenant doing what the old covenant was intended to do, forming a people that live in the world as we were meant to, not through a list of rules, but through a renewed relationship with God that truly teaches them how to be human again. Human beings living in our world so connected to the love of God that his will naturally flows out of them. It's just how they exist. And how is it going to come about? It says in Jeremiah that it's going to be brought about through this powerful act of God to bless, forgive, and extend love through this new covenant in a way that transforms human hearts in response to it. That somehow, some way, there's going to be this moment where God acts with such love that human beings can only respond by literally having a heart transplant. Their hearts are just turned upside down in response. They develop an entirely new posture to our world, to ourselves, to other people. The promise of a new covenant coming out from the old one given to Israel at Mount Sinai. So with that in mind, what does Matthew want you to think when Jesus reenacts the Exodus story and then he goes up on a mountain to teach these people invited into the kingdom of God about how we live within the kingdom of God? This moment in the Exodus, this moment when God passed along his teaching to his people to transform them is happening again. Think about it. It's the same movement, but this time it's kind of different. Did you catch this? Does Jesus, like Moses, come back down with the instruction to give to the people? No. Jesus goes up the mountain and then sits down and starts to teach. So who is Jesus in our Exodus story? Is he Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments to give to the people? Or is he the person on the top of the mountain who gave the teaching in the first place? I mean, this is radical stuff. Jesus goes up the mountain, and then he puts himself in the position of God at the top. And he says, let me teach you what it looks like to be a human being again in my kingdom. And then he begins to act and to teach as God did, but in a new transcendent way. The second thing we read is he begins with this list of things called the Beatitudes or blessings. You've probably heard them said at funerals, right? 
Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So what's going on here? Why does he start in this way? Well, just like the Israelites, how did their story start? Did it start with them doing something to earn God's gift of liberation? No, God just frees them from Egypt, right? God blesses them first and foremost. And what do we find? This crowd of people have come before God and he has just declared them blessed. Do the Beatitudes have any stipulations? No, he just says, you are blessed. And who's in the crowd? The sinners, the prostitutes, the spiritual zeros, the rock bottoms. And Jesus begins his ethic of the kingdom by simply saying, you are blessed. It has been freely given right where you are at. In other words, Jesus begins with a blessing without stipulation because these are the people invited into the kingdom first. You have come into contact with the king and regardless of who you are or what you've done, he has declared you the blessed ones. And then Jesus moves into this third thing. He says, what does it look like when a people responds to this invitation to the kingdom, to this blessing, when they accept the gift? Well, he says, it's gonna form a people who are like salt and light in the world. What does that mean? Well, it's a people who live in the world in such a way that they bring the flavor of a new kingdom to it. There are people who, with how they live, shine a light to people looking to come home, who are lost in the dark. He says, a people who find the blessing become the blessing for other people. And then it starts getting super interesting because after this moment, when he says, you're gonna become the kingdom flavor, you're gonna become the kingdom blessing, he begins to lay out the goal of his teaching. We find it in Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Who woke up today and said, I'm going to fulfill the Ten Commandments? How do you fulfill a list of rules? What are you talking about, Jesus? <laughs> like, I get the prophets one. It's like, yeah, there were some predictions. They pointed to Jesus. Cool. Yeah. But how do you fulfill the law? I mean, this is fascinating. What is Jesus getting at? He says, I have not come to get rid of the law. I have come to fulfill the purpose of it, to embed the will and the love of God on the hearts of a reshaped people that reflect God's character to the world. And this sets up the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. As God on the mountaintop, Jesus says, I am passing along a new law, a new teaching that will fulfill what the original was intended to do, one that includes, one that transcends, one that completes, one that fulfills. And what follows is powerful stuff. In the first section, we find this similar pattern playing out. Jesus takes an Old Testament law, and then he does something interesting to it. I just want to throw a few examples at you. In Matthew 5, 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. What's that from? The Ten Commandments. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to that same judgment. Huh. 527, you have heard that it was said, same pattern, you shall not commit adultery. What's that from? Ten Commandments. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. 
Next, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, you go with them too. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. Non-violent, non-retaliation. In each case, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and then he cites the law, the will of God, the founding document of the Jewish people. And then he says, but I say, and he reinterprets, he expands it, he adds to it, which, what does that say about who Jesus says he is? He's God. It's pretty radical stuff. And it's profound. Notice what he does. He reorients each one around what they were intended to address in the first place, the human heart. The law wasn't meant to be just a list of rules, Jesus says. It was meant to do something for us, to change the heart of a human being and to change the actions it produces. He says, it's great that you didn't murder someone. I'm still cool with that commandment. But if you think that's the only point of it, you are missing it. He says, don't just deal with not murdering people. Root out the brokenness that creates murder. Root out the pride, the anger, the contempt, that superiority that we think we have rights that other people don't. Root that out, he says, and deal with the posture and the attitudes that creates the actions in the world. Deal with your heart posture that causes you to dehumanize other people, to put yourself above other people, to think that you have the right to extinguish other people in the first place. And then he goes on, he says this about so many things. Jesus says anger, contempt, objectification, using people, lying, manipulation, tribalism. He says all of these are symptoms of the disease, the broken attitudes and heart postures we hold about ourselves, others, and our God. And he says if you want to live in the kingdom, you got to deal with that. Each time Jesus quotes the command and then moves beyond it as just a rule, he focuses on the human heart that it was intended to create in a person living fully in the kingdom of God. And in doing so, Jesus claims he is fulfilling the law, getting at the intent, at the purpose to reshape a new kind of humanity living in the midst of our world a Jeremiah 31 new covenant people who through Jesus and his teaching and his blessing finally deal with the root problem that the law sought to address in the first place, our hearts and the actions that they produce to break our world. And the goal and the vision of life in the kingdom sets so the framework for what he's trying to teach us in the Sermon on the Mount. He takes this crowd of who the most broken, the most damaged, the most lost, the most dastardly people, and he pronounces them blessed. What was going to happen in Jeremiah 31? God was going to move towards us in such a radical way of love that we would, what, be changed in response. So he comes to this people of spiritual zeros, people who are lost in this world, and he says, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you are blessed and you are invited into a new kingdom, into my kingdom. He says, you can come in. This is the radical movement of God in Jeremiah 31. They are blessed and invited into the renewed relationship, 
the forgiveness, the grace, the love of God given freely. And then what? The movement of blessing was always supposed to do what? It was supposed to create a people in the world of kingdom, flavor, and light. People who get the blessing, they get the word spoken over them, want to give that blessing away. The movement of blessing that gives lost human beings a new story of their humanity and the kingdom of God. A story that, when internalized, moves human beings so deeply that we could only say that person had a heart transplant. Because the mic I used to know, I never would have called salt and light. It's the transformation of the human heart in response to a blessing. And the movement that forms out of this is a movement that forms a community of disciples centered around Jesus that can begin to put the fulfillment of the law into practice themselves. You see, this people that comes to understand their own kingdom blessing and their renewed relationship with God, Jesus believes as the Sermon on the Mount goes, will begin to practice life in the kingdom here and now. Jesus says that when you really understand this, you're going to begin to practice right relationships. You're going to begin to become a people whose divine grace and love begin to root out anger, contempt, objectification, using manipulation, pride, greed, selfishness judgmentalism, pride. He says that when you understand this, you're going to begin to take my teachings and practice new patterns of life. He says the kingdom has kingdom habits that flow out of this relationship. New habits of generosity, giving, self-sacrifice, serving others before we serve ourselves, seeing our lives and our stuff as a gift that we are called to give away to a kingdom of blessing for someone else because we were invited in before we had done anything. Jesus teaches this people new practices of prayer and spiritual disciplines meant to connect us to God, to teach us to trust him, to relinquish our control on the world through a deep trust, going out into the world as a kingdom people. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus gives his people his teaching because he believes it will produce an upside-down community with upside-down values living in the midst of a world that, quite frankly, needs to be turned upside-down. Am I right? Has anyone looked at our world today and said it could use something different, a new flavor, a new light? Jesus believes that this teaching will produce a people who turn this upside-down, He believes that it's going to create a people in response to the invitation and to the blessing that can internalize it and it can change how they see themselves, how they see God, how they see other people. And as we learn to practice the movements, the habits, the patterns of the kingdom, we find it becoming what? Our second nature. What Jesus believes in the Sermon on the Mount is that as we put into practice these practices, these habits, these movements, we start doing them without even thinking about it. What started out as so unnatural just becomes how we exist in the world. That we, just by who we are, fulfill what the law was meant to do, creating a people that are an irresistible community defined by radical transformation of the human heart. A people drawing in the world with the invitation of newness and the upside-down kingdom blessing that they were given at the start. 
a people who live fully within a different kingdom in our world. And I want to close by inviting up the band from this morning because I want to show you why this analogy of music stuck with me so much. What is the ethic of the kingdom all about, according to Jesus? It's about learning a new nature. It's about learning to be a different kind of musician, learning a new instrument to make a new kind of music in the world that, quite frankly, needs a different tune. It is about becoming a person who can make the music of the kingdom with their lives. So, for Jesus, how do we become kingdom people playing a different song? Well, the first thing you do is you recognize that there's something missing. I have been playing the same song for my entire life, and it has gotten me nowhere. I'm just still as angry. I'm still as hateful. I'm still as cruel. I'm still as uncaring. I'm still as selfish as I ever was. And I just want to play a different song. And from that need, what do we do? We find a teacher to show us the way. We find someone who has done what we have never been able to do, which is change, which has passed the test, which has be a human being as we wish we could be. And we go to him and we say, I want to play your music. Teach me to play your music. And what does that teacher say? He says, you are invited. Come learn. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. Come learn to play a different song. And at that point, at that point, we have to respond. We have to let them show us the basics, the fundamentals, the rudiments, the ideas, the movements, the practices that at first just feel so alien to us, don't they? Forgive instead of retaliate. Think of someone as being as important as you think of yourself. Sacrifice instead of giving power or taking power. Give generously instead of being greedy. The drum roll, give grace instead of judgment. And if we truly trust the teacher in who he says he is, if we truly trust that the teacher means what he says he means, and we actually learn what he means to us, we start to practice what we've been taught, the fundamentals over and over and over again, we honor the invitation and the blessing and the teaching with what we've been giving by responding and doing likewise. And over time, we find that the fundamentals aren't things that we think about. We find that they become embedded within us in our hearts. They become who we are, and we stop just practicing music we've been given, and we start making it ourselves. We stop just trying to imitate the kingdom songs because we learn to be kingdom musicians who write kingdom songs. This is what it means to live in the kingdom, to come to the feet of King Jesus, to let him be our teacher. When we truly accept the blessing and the invitation, when we come to and trust the teacher, when we put into practice his ways of living as our own, well, before we know it, the ethic of the kingdom becomes our second nature and we find ourselves transformed and capable of making music of the kingdom in a world that desperately needs it. We find that we end up making a new kind of song. So what is the music of the kingdom? 
Well, let's hear it from a better and smarter teacher than I. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies, the music of the kingdom. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye, non-judgment, the music of the kingdom. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And lead us not into the testing, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive your sins. Forgiveness and reconciliation, the music of the kingdom. I want to close with how Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount, because quite frankly, he's a little better at this than I was. Jesus says, what does it look like when we, when we do this? When we live in the kingdom of God here and now. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is alike a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Practice. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and they beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. Put the ethic of the kingdom into practice when we find the blessing and we set out to be the musicians, to be the salt and the light. We are called to be a people who put the story and the teachings of our King, our Messiah of Jesus into practice, a people built on a new, firm foundation, a people with a new kingdom heart people building their lives on the one sure thing we have, the life of our king, the truest human being we've ever known, the one who teaches us to make a different song in this world, the music of 
the kingdom. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of music that I want to make. Amen. Amen.